Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Mike Dada joining us, MKM Partners, Chief Economist and Chief Market Strategist. Can they, Mike? Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. Uh, they can and they probably will as long as those Fed funds futures are still pricing in greater than a 50% probability of a rate hike on Wednesday. And the last I saw in the Bloomberg terminal was about a two-thirds probability in favor of hiking. But I think what's more important is the language and the directive on a go-forward basis. So I think what financial markets are probably looking for is what some are calling a dovish hike, meaning if they do raise rates an additional 25 basis points, really to move to a totally neutral directive on the language. We sort of skip the decision and get straight to the summary of economic projections, as is typical with these meetings, Mike. And we look at the dispersion in the dots where the Federal Reserve officials think rates will be in 2019. There's a huge spread. They're all over the place. Do we expect them to coalesce on a lower rate compared to where the median dot is right now? I would certainly be shocked if the dot plot did not move down at least some, um, because if we think about what the Fed was doing most of the year, they were basically setting markets up for what they were calling an overshoot of the neutral policy rate. And, you know, the argument for that was due to, quote unquote, loose financial conditions. So clearly that's reversed with credit markets coming under strain and stock markets becoming much more volatile. And the Fed was also concerned about, you know, growth running above trend, but we're starting to see some softening in the in the data. So the justification for continuing to move rates up uh, and overshoot a neutral policy rate, I think, is totally evaporated. So just based on that, we really should see some moderation in those dots. Michael Darda, is this just a monetary politics and demographics and where nominal GDP or the terminal rate should be buttressed up against politics of more and more and more? I mean, are we trying to get to goals that were goals of 10 and 20 years ago that just shouldn't be goals now, like 5% nominal GDP? Well, Tom, believe it or, believe it or not, we actually do have five and a half percent nominal GDP year over year. The yeah, I know, problem but, uh, is yeah. that yeah, the financial markets know that's not going to be sustainable, and the Fed doesn't believe it's sustainable and wants it to slow. And so, you know, now the dilemma is, you know, do you look at the forward-looking financial market indicators, which are telling you nominal growth is going to slow? The Fed has done its job; it's probably already at neutral. Yeah. Uh, and if it keeps going, it risks going beyond neutral, and then you know we have fears of a downturn or. You know, is the Fed just going to be wedded to backward looking information? And that's when you end up with a policy mistake. Add into that, you know, political pressure on the Fed to stop tightening. And that makes their job more complicated. So that's that's an unfortunate element here. You know, we just saw Peter Navarro, you know, President Trump's trade advisor, come out yesterday with his advice for the Fed. You know, he could do financial markets a big favor, um, <laughs> perhaps looking perhaps looking for a new career track. But barring that, uh, zipping it on. There's an opening in Manchester some, United. Some fighting words from Mike Darda there. Um, Peter Navarro is not alone in calling for them to pause. Stan Druckenmiller, legendary investor, double lines, Jeff Gunlack calling for the same thing. Mike, here's an interesting question. We started the program by asking you 
can the Fed hike rates when the market is in a mess? Let's sort of engineer, re-engineer this a little bit. Take away the market. This economic data has come, I would say, exactly in line with what the Federal Reserve predicted at the last meeting and the meeting before. <clears throat> Their forecast for next year are at 250 for real GDP in 2019, at 2% there and thereabouts for 2020. I'm trying to understand how the Federal Reserve brings down their economic forecast when the data so far hasn't disappointed. It's come pretty much in line with what they expected. Right. Well, therein lies the rub. You know, if you remember back to 2014 to 2016, we had a situation where there was a lot of volatility in financial markets. And initially, initially, the macro data was quite strong. And, you know, the Fed ultimately did move to the sidelines after just one rate rise in December of 2015, came under a lot of criticism for that. But if we look back at the data now, the financial markets were out in front of a very significant economic slowdown. So if the Fed wants to be forward looking, it has no choice but to look at the market. People don't like that, but that's too bad. Michael, you've written about this before. And in every monetary person's mind is a failure of Japan I don't know, 15, 18 years ago, where they attempted to raise rates and they had to turn around and bring it back down. Does that actually play in the mind of fancy PhDs at the Fed? Uh, Tom, it should, because it's not just Japan. It happened in Sweden. You know, they got rates up to around 2%, and then they went negative because they triggered a downturn. The ECB totally blew it in 2011. So I think the Fed is the Fed's timing has certainly been better. You know, they've been able to, to move rates up in a, sustain, yeah. a sustained way now for about two years, and, and macroeconomic conditions have, have remained pretty buoyant. So, so far, so good, but you get to a point where it's time to back off and you need to be forward-looking, and that's where we are. Well, arguably, Chairman Powell backed off a little bit. That was the perception of a lot of people at that speech here in New York, Mike. And, and what's interesting to me is that the rates market has already moved. So is the equity market waiting for confirmation from the Federal Reserve for what the rates market is already priced for? Is that what we're saying going into tomorrow? I think so. I mean, it's interesting. The, you know, the rates market is, does seem to be way ahead here. We were well along the way to pricing out all the, the rate hikes for, for next year. So it looks like the only thing left in financial markets in terms of you know, rate hiking probabilities is you know, for another 25 basis point rise this Wednesday, and then the Fed goes on pause. Unless there's a big reversal, you know, we're focused on equity markets, but consider the fact that inflation expectations have dropped pretty precipitously credit spreads have widened on a year-over-year basis for three consecutive months. The Fed has to take that into consideration. Mike Dada, it's great to catch up with you. And John Farrow, to bring in our next esteemed guest, I brought up a 2011 story from Bleacher Report, which is basically, are the New York Yankees like Manchester United? Are the Manchester Uniteds like New York Yankees? And, of course, you come down in 2011 to megastar players, Jeter, A-Rod, Jason Giambe, Jose Canseco. Do you even know who Jose Canseco is? I've watched the Yankees. Eric Cantona, Roy Keane, K-E-A-N-E. How'd you get to Roy Keane? A guy named Beckham (laughs) and a guy named Rooney. 
The world's changed since 2011. The, the, world, the world has definitely changed. We have got to bring in on a day like today, on a morning like this morning, Jim O'Neill himself, the former chief of Goldman Sachs Asset Management and the man who once engineered a takeover of Manchester United Football Club. Jim, good morning to you. Jose Mourinho good. is out. The manager is gone. Your thoughts? Uh, good morning. Uh, can I just say that uh, it was rumoured that I was doing that rather than definitive. But um, So, what to say? You know, as problematic as he has been as United's manager, I don't think just changing the manager to whoever it might be is going to solve our basic dilemmas, which are, are substantial. Um, I'd, I'd recommend, I don't know if you can get it over that side of the pond, but for all your viewers, the BT Sport had a fantastic program on last week about Too Good to Go Down, which was all about, in 1973-74, Manchester United were relegated five years after winning the European Cup uh, and came straight back, by the way, but it was one of my favourite periods of following United as a fan. So we have no divine right to permanent success, but it is this fantastic, uh, wonderful sporting entity that is at the hearts and minds of everybody that loves uh, the sport of football. George Best, Dennis Law, two names you didn't mention, Cantona, Conchelsis. And so I, I, I mentioned I would, I would, George I would, I would, Best today on TV, the fifth Jim, I would have loved it if Tom had named some of those players that you just named. <laughs> I mentioned George Best on TV today, the fifth Beatle. Jim O'Neill, is this because of the Americans? Is is this story franchise? The style of the, these, guys, these guys are not interested in Manchester United as a football team. These guys are interested in Manchester United as a brand. And what they now need to really take stock on that if they are not very thorough in shifting the structure of the club and how they own it, they're going to damage not only the most important sporting thing I've ever been proud to be associated with permanently, but they will damage their own pockets. So hopefully this isn't the only decision that's being made, that they're going to have a big rethink about how to actually preside over the world's greatest sporting institution. So what needs to be done, Jim? What would you do? Uh, they need to, they need to, you know, to be honest, it's sort of, you know, I think you guys might know, I recently became chair of Chatham House. I put it in the context of all of that. They need to discover, uh, as many businesses do, business, business with purpose. Right. You know, Manchester, Manchester United exists to thrill millions of human beings all over the world. Not, not just something that can generate advertising right. revenue. Jim, I'm a hack at and this. They, You're, they Jim. need to get away from this. Jim O'Neill, I look at it as an amateur, and I see Manchester City going at double speed. They just seem to play yep. blindingly fast. At the NHL and hockey, the same transition occurred. To all the teams, including Man U, do they need to catch up with the speed of the game that seems to be the new game? So what any, any United fan would say right now, what makes it particularly annoying is that uh, the two most exciting teams within the country are Liverpool and Manchester United, who are, of course, uh, arch rivals, particularly Liverpool. Uh, and so, you know, we need to, of course, there needs to be a new culture. The yeah. clubs from top to bottom need to redefine and think about what is the purpose of Manchester United as a football institution and to get back to the romance. Right. 
excitement of George Best and Eric Cantona and all the rest of it. How do you do that with the new players? Which young player out there, before we go, Jim O'Neill, I know you have meetings this morning, which young player worldwide does Manchester United well, need to be? You know, we, we, have, we have one of the uh, French World Cup winners who uh, if, if sort of guided and brought into the philosophy and focus, you would imagine, would, would feature in most teams' midfields. Uh, you know, we have plenty of exciting talent and, you know, United's history is all about actually every now and then making sure homegrown youth comes through. Yeah. So, you know, and, and amongst the many things that have been going wrong, United's youth team is no longer that successful or important to the owners either. Well, and that I, needs to change. Jim, we've got to leave there. So, Jim O'Neill, thank you so Great much. to catch up with appreciate you, it to catch up with him, of course, for years with Goldman Sachs. And, and that is an impassioned Jim O'Neill. Oh, very much I so. I believe I've never heard him that impassioned over dollar yen I, I imagine he hasn't been <laughs> it may be a three dog night but it is a four tweet morning for the president of the united states He's looking, and I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase these tweets because they're too long. I don't want to waste the time to get to our valued guest, the Mueller witch hunt. And then he goes on to speak of General Michael Flynn. And then, as John Farrell mentioned, the Wall Street Journal editorial. I hope the people over at the Fed will read today's editorial. We still don't know what 50 Bs means. I think it means billions. I'll go with John on that. And then just most recently, Facebook, Twitter, and Google are so biased toward the Dems. It is ridiculous, etc. Terry Haynes with us with Evercore ISI, who is forced to read each and every tweet. Terry, is there a permanence to this after Trump? Are we going to see presidents with a more original communication strategy as we see with this president? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, once you know, the loose analog breaching the fourth wall, once you've yeah. breached the fourth wall, you pretty much can't go back. Uh, I, I imagine that'll be the case. You know, uh, uh, Peggy Noonan made a very good point in uh, last Friday's uh, uh, column in the Journal yeah. that uh, uh, the last two presidents have appealed to emotion rather than uh, the strict policy parameters. And yeah, you know, she's right about that. And then Twitter's one way to okay. stick those emotions. Is this a legislative system that will appeal to emotion? I mean, there have been figments of it or little moments of it, I should say. I think of Sam Irvin during Watergate and others, Howard Baker and, you know, uh, through through all, all of our history. But is this a legislative branch able to use emotion constructively in our our clear and present gridlock? Well, sometimes it does, you know, and I, I've, I've been part of a number of those, uh, the yeah. post 9-11 with the Patriot Act, uh, post Enron WorldCom with Sarbanes-Oxley. I mean, you know, emotion and urgency plays a role in uh, in 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 congressional uh, success, congressional action all the time. I would expect that yeah. to continue uh, regardless. Sure. I want to turn to something, Terry, you've led on, which is a constructive infrastructure debate. And folks, I mean this with no disrespect, but as I said, I think when I came back, it's always good to come back to the third world infrastructure of the United States of America. In this case, I was in London, Heathrow Terminal 5, you know, the fancy, fancy. And then and, and John I Fair, just want the oyster Brussels. card. All I want, Tom, is the oyster I got card. an oyster card. I got that's, it right that's here. That's all I want. Just I, bring I, that to the New York subway. I, it would make I, such a you difference. You know, we were getting from the, <laughs> no, Terry, seriously, I was getting from the green over. And, you know, to be honest, I'm so dumb they had to escort me 
through the Westminster subway. What line was I on the circle? You were on the district and the district. district. And I finally got an Oyster card because we were going back and, and forth you know what crazy. You can use now. You can use your credit card, the contactless chip on the, yeah, on the credit to, card. To pay for it right there? Tap in. Okay, tap in and Terry, enter the subway. Why can't we do this? I mean, forget about why can't you bring Eurostar to America? Why can't we just have a 59th Street that's relatively smooth? Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, and one of them is the uh, the, the state local uh, emphasis. Generally speaking, you know, it was uh, it took a long time, and uh, it took a long time to build the interstate highways because there was an intrinsic bias towards uh, to state and local projects, state and local money. That's the way the things always worked. And, of course, members of Congress represent states and localities. So uh, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's yeah. an old saying down here that uh, if you want to start uh, achieving something, uh, don't don't begin by rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And uh, the so what you're proposing, essentially, is, you know, let's completely overhaul the way the money's doled out. I mean, that is a... Uh, the, the, that is a recipe for uh, quick. Yeah, time, I, I mean, and folks, to be honest, as Terry Haynes knows, you go back to the C&O Canal, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal of, I believe, George Washington's time. And essentially, Terry, sure. nothing's changed in our history, right? Well, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, what you get is injections of federal money, uh, but still state and local, uh, the, the, the state yeah. and local money, yeah. you know, match or significantly <clears throat> contribute, yeah. all the way from uh, CNO and the National Road of the early 1800s. Yeah. Does, does, US, US 40 today. Yeah. Does the new Congress have a constraint from CBO? Is the fiscal deficit and the dynamics of our growing debt and deficit are they actually going to be part of the dialogue in 2019? Oh, I think so. And I think that's one reason why I've, I've suggested that a lot of policy debates, and I've, I always use infrastructure as one of the main examples, uh, end up in market sugar highs that really don't lead anywhere. Uh, what you have is a situation where Democrats want to, want to spend a lot on infrastructure, but they want to roll back the tax the 2017 tax law in order to do it. Uh, Republicans won't stand for that, neither will the president. Uh, Republicans might toy if they were given their heads. I think they wouldn't, but they, they would certainly toy with the idea of increasing the deficit marginally in order to pay for infrastructure. And the Democrats have uh, have been foursquare about not wanting that to happen. So what you've got is, is uh, gridlock on the how, not gridlock on the priority. Terry, the market can sort of stomach the idea of a shutdown. We're going to have the debt ceiling debate in a big way anytime soon. Uh, yes, but I think uh, let me get to that in, in one second. Uh, the shutdown I want to emphasize is at at most. I, I don't think it's very likely. I have it at twenty percent likely to happen today, but. Uh, but even a shutdown would be a partial shutdown of only about 25 percent of federal funding. Now, that is because the other 75 percent has already been decided upon. So uh, so th- this is going to be you know, not unimportant, but uh, but small. And so number one, number two on the debt ceiling. Yes. But I think that the what you've seen over the last decade, certainly since the, the 2011 uh, near death experience, is a desire to want to make sure that there's fiscal continuity, and part and parcel of that's going to be raising the debt ceiling. Now, ask you know the the the, the old uh, adages will still apply. The uh, the progressive left and the conservative right won't like it, but the vast majority of Congress will still be Republican and Democratic centrists, and they will still continue uh, to want to be able to to raise, suspend, deal with the debt ceiling. 
ceiling in a way that uh, doesn't cause uh, any kind of serious problem. Terry Haynes, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Terry. With Evercore ISI and just always informative. and. Joining us now, Freya Beamish of Pantheon Macroeconomics. She's Chief Asia Economist coming to us from the United Kingdom. Freya, thank you so much for being here. I guess I'm trying to understand what people were exactly were hoping he would announce and how significant it is that he really did not uh, outline any new policies. I guess he, people might have been hoping that he would announce some uh, stimulus in the context of the, the much weaker numbers that we've had coming out of China recently and the kind of growing, uh, the move of consensus towards uh, the recognition that growth is, is not picking up, um, or perhaps some, some kind of reforms that could get people um, more more uh, excited on, on that side of things. But this speech was really always going to be about um, the, the the 40 years of of, um, of the opening up and, and uh, reform process and really kind of extolling the virtues of that whole um, that whole uh, procedure and, and, and um, growth model. So it would have been a kind of an awkward time to be releasing a whole bunch of, of, of stimulus measures. I think in reality, the likelihood of those stimulus measures has increased quite um, substantially and that's because um, liquidity conditions over the course of Q4 um, have, have sort of sputtered out again in the te- or have, have not, not loosened as the PBOC would have, have um, liked. Um, they have been trying to loosen policy, I think, since Q2 and taking quite a marginal approach. Um, but it hasn't really um, it hasn't really worked so far. And the main reason for that is because uh, households and firms are getting less confident about the, the outlook for the economy um, and seem to be transferring their money holdings into longer dated deposits. And that in, in China's very kind of um, banking centric economy is a very good indicator that growth really is going to be slow all the way through uh, half, uh, the, the first half of next year and into Q3 of, 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 of next year as well. So the likelihood that the, the PBOC is going to be able to continue with this marginal approach all through um, that long period of time um, is, is quite slim, I think. So we're, we're really kind of tipping towards uh, the, the People's Bank of China enacting a rate cut here. Freya, could you speak to the connection, if there indeed is one, between the restructuring of the shadow banking system in China and the companies that are most affected by that restructuring? And I'm thinking of small and mid-sized companies yeah. specifically. Yeah, this is this is a major problem that they have that, that they have actually admitted now that they hadn't really anticipated just the extent to which their de-risking program and the, the crackdown on shadow banking was going to um, impinge upon the, the funding of, of the, the types of firms that you've just been referring to, the small, um, medium-sized private firms. Um, in, in Q3, there was the added kind of, um, the added drag for those companies that um, the, the local government, local government was just, was just crowding out all of the the, the bond uh, issuance um, and and making it very difficult for corporations even to get um, funding through through the bond market. Um, in Q4, that's loosened up a bit, so we're starting to see a bit more kind of loosening for um, for credit conditions um, for the for in the bond market, and also actually in terms of conventional bank borrowing, but not on the on the shadow banking side of things on which so many of these companies are, are dependent. And the the main problem that they're facing in terms of of, 
um, of GDP growth turning around is that there has yet been a, a kind of modest um, improvement in credit conditions, but that hasn't translated into liquidity conditions because of what I was mentioning about um, firms being very kind of um, uh, trepidatious about the, the, the outlook um, and not really wanting to spend. So they've been moving their liquidity holdings um, into into the, the, the longer dated deposits. And that really tells us that they just aren't, aren't willing to, to spend at the moment for, for obvious reasons, that the growth is slowing, that there's an uncertain trade outlook, um, and just that the, the environment for, for, for capital expenditure is, is not great at this stage. And at the same at the same time, the labor market is deteriorating, and therefore um, the household sector is, is feeling that kind of pinch, and it looks like they're looking to, to raising their savings rates as well in anticipation of, of that further deterioration. Well, let me just offer one other data point, and then I'd like your mm-hmm. thoughts on the implications for global commodity markets, specifically for mm-hmm. oil markets, because automobile sales in China have basically declined. I mean, inventories jumped, but if you look at the actual sales numbers, it's like the first year down in something like a quarter century. Yeah, it's possible some of that data is is somewhat distorted because of sampling issues on on the retail sales side of things that they only include firms that are above a certain threshold in terms of their annual revenue. So some of that might be uh, somewhat distorted. But if if there are firms that are dropping out of the sample, then that tells you that at least some portion of firms, particularly the smaller firms, going back to our earlier conversation, um, are are struggling and they are seeing revenues falling. Um, And that tells us that the, the uh, there is a big problem in retail sales in general and, and in autos, as you've highlighted, is a particular um, area of, of difficulty, which, which, you know, these are big ticket items and the labor market is deteriorating. It makes sense for, for households, particularly in the context of, of the kind of the negative wealth effects that they've had this year through the decline in equities in, in the equities market. Um, it makes sense for households to be thinking twice about these, um, these, these, these purchases. Well, with I mean, that, the other thing that we can note on this side, on the on on the supply side, is that there is this very strong shift towards the um, the, the kind of the new energy vehicles. You've mentioned oil, but there is a shift towards the new energy vehicles and the potential for um, eventually for this to become an excessive uh, supply in the same way that we've seen uh, Chinese excess savings being channeled into into solar power previously, and that helped to kind of bring about a, a decline in in, um, in in the price of, of photovoltaic cells. We could see something similar happening in on for, for new energy vehicles. So if you happen to run a business that depends on exports of commodities to China, and I'm thinking of people Mm -hmm. specifically, let's say, in Australia, what should you take away from the recent economic news about China? Well, it's, there's there's two sides to this. I'm not going to give you a, on the one hand, on the other hand thing. That's too economisty. But the, <laughs> okay. the, um, the 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 thing is that when when commodity prices are, are tanking, that's not great for Chinese firms either. And a lot of the firms that are very over indebted, um, they they are you know feeling the pinch and of those of the of the commodity price declines that we've seen so far. Um, and the, the incentive now for the Chinese government is to get in there and, and curtail production and try to support um, try to support um, prices in, in that sense in order to, to help these companies continue their, their many multi-year um, deleveraging process. So there is at least that 
um, flaw uh, from from the Chinese side on the supply side. Um, but more broadly, Chinese demand growth is uh, is is definitely slowing, and as I said, the, the leading indicators point to uh, a slowdown well into into next year, into the later part of, of next year. And particularly if we're talking about hard commodities, we've got um, the, the the property market showing signs of of, of fatigue um, with sales slowing and. Um, and the household sector more broadly uh, facing facing difficulties there. Um, so it, it, it's not a great outlook on the demand side for, for, for commodities. And I haven't even asked you about U.S.-China trade relations. So now I'm asking, what is your outlook? <laughs> well, in the... Okay, in the longer term sense, then then I, I still see these two economies on a collision path here, and that's because I think China's going to have difficulty in transitioning to private consumption-led growth, and the flip side of that means that they're going to continue to have excess savings, and those are going to have to be channeled somewhere. They have and they have until now been channeled into the commodities, the old guard um, sectors, and and the kind of the polluting sectors, where it's no longer possible for for China to continue um, pumping uh, pumping up. The debt and, and also to continue um, degrading the environment from a political standpoint. So th- the only outlet for those savings now is in the move up the value added chain and the so-called Made in China 2020, um, 2025. Um, so that puts China on this collision path with with the U.S. because it moves them into that kind of higher value added um, output that, that Mr. Trump is so worried about. Um, in the short term, uh, we do think that Mr. Trump actually has been weakened by the um, by the, the result of the midterm elections, that if we're, you're a Republican looking towards 2020, then, we've then got it, to take, it's no longer... We've got to take your short-term answer because we've got to run. I want to thank you very much, Freya Beamish, Pantheon Macroeconomics Chief Asia Economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.